Well, good morning, everybody. It's 7, 7.13. I hope you're doing very well. Um, two things I forgot to mention. Uh, three, in fact, I forgot to mention in my Man of Steel review. Number one, um, high definition makes everybody over 30 look like they're the moon. I just wanted to mention that. Um, that's fairly important. Terraforming the Earth works about as well as transplanting democracy to a rather feral and medieval Middle East. Uh, that's uh, also quite important. And most importantly, um, Morpheus likes donuts. Anyway, uh, it's still <laughs> an interesting film to see. I'm afraid that the, the October um, conference that was going to be run by Steph Kinsella, Jeff Tucker, and myself is on hold. It will be delayed uh, until um, uh, next year. Uh, but one of the things I was chatting about with the Tuck uh, of the Jeffrey is that it might be interesting to do a conference in Rome next summer. And uh, I know I've got lots of European listeners who said, dude, come over. Uh, actually, they haven't said dude. <laughs> but they said, uh, come, come to Europe, and I would love to come to Europe. It has been, I guess the last time I was in Europe, I was traveling to sell a product with IBM in Paris, which is a very interesting city. Um, a, uh, I don't know, a story? Uh, do you explain an inconsequential story? I guess so. Well, first of all, the Paris is interesting because it really does look like you. It feels like you're walking around the Death Star. It's these high, these high buildings, um, but they're like uh, tenement buildings. And so it really feels like you're TIE fighters going overhead and all that. But um, I had some, this is when I used to live downtown, and I had some neighbors, and the, the neighbor's wife was French uh, from Paris. And she said, oh, you must go, and you must talk to my friend. Her name is like Giselle or something, or some Parisian name. So when I was there, so I was there for a couple of days on business, and uh, Giselle uh, and I uh, ended up meeting up, and uh, she was going through a complete freakout because she had just bought a condominium at the bottom of one of these Death Star trenches with almost no light whatsoever, and so uh, I ended up helping her to find a lawyer and uh, find a way to get out of the contract and so on. And in return, she said, oh, you must come to, to dinner with my friends. We are friends coming tonight. I don't know what accent that is, but anyway. Uh, and um, I said, well, you know, my French is really not very good. It's certainly not, uh, not to dinner table conversation French. And so she said, no, you must come. We all, uh, my friends, we speak English. And, you know, to their credit, for about 90 to 120 seconds, they did, in fact, speak English. And then they lapsed into rapid-fire Parisian staccato Morse code French. Um, and I think there was some Klingon in there as well. My French is a little rusty. And uh, two, of, two of the guys actually there were also named Stéphane. So they kept a... Stéphane. Uh, oh, me? No, no. So anyway, it was not, not the most exciting dinner, but I was certainly glad to have dipped in and give her some help. She did end up getting out of this wretched basement-dwelling dark <laughs> condo situation. But... Um, it's always good. You know, probably more memorable than uh, going to the Louvre. Anyway, so uh, that's it for my introduction, and um, I guess we might as well go straight. Oh, yeah, so if you're interested, uh, if, you are, would become, if you would come to Rome, or if you're in Rome and would like to come to a conference, just shoot me an email, um, operations at freedomainradio.com, and uh, don't forget, mailbag at freedomainradio.com is where you can uh, send your questions for my pitter-patter of... Uh, interrogating against a white background, 900 lights uh, mailbag session. So if you want to send your questions in, I will do my best to try and answer them. Mailbag at freedomainradio.com. Donations, of course, always massively appreciated and requested. Uh, I, think, I think I might need to upgrade my camera 
Um, it's about seven years old, and it cost about 800 bucks seven years ago. And I just, I was down talking to a camera guy who said, you know, massive changes and so on. I've never really been too happy with the way the camera works in terms of how it picks up the light. I've tried all the manual settings in the world. I'm certainly no expert. And if you do have any expertise in that, please let me know. If you, you can talk me through anything, but uh, I just never seem to quite get the light right. I'd like something a little bit more automated. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's the master of, of, you know, the philosophy show. So I'd like to sort of keep that humming along nicely. Um, other than that, I think we're okay for technical equipment. But uh, uh, if you would like to help out, it's uh, fdrurl.com forward slash donate. Always massively appreciated. So, Mr. Mike, who do we have to chat with today, huh? All right, Jeremy, you're the first caller up today. Go ahead. Hello. Hi, Stefan. Hello. I'm sure you won't uh, mind if I refer to you as Jer Bear. Is that, is that okay? <laughs> That's fine by me. All right. Whatever floats the boat. Um, so I don't know if you remember, uh, we had a talk uh, like a month ago. I had a nasty breakup uh, from a girl that was kind of a nut. I do. Uh, uh, well, anyways... Um, that turned out to be probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. And the reason that that is is because after that whole incident, I kind of stopped avoiding the pursuit of self-knowledge I was, you know, putting off, I guess. And so I delved right in. Now, it doesn't mean that I, you know, achieved, you know, <laughs> you know, like a complete knowledge or anything, but I've... Um, I've definitely examined my relationships very rigorously, I'd say. And since then, I've actually, I, I defooed from my mom. Honestly, it was something that was, in the end, I, I didn't, don't even think it was really that hard a decision. And I'm not sure what it was that kept me from realizing the truth about the relationship. But when I examined it, it it just seemed like she was um, the cause of so much grief for me that I was just, you know, obscuring and, and hiding. Um, but anyways, th that's not my question. My question is um, actually about the nature of love. Sounds like a good question. I just wanted to mention that I'm very sorry to hear about your mom. I know that's a big decision. That's a tough decision. Um, I'm really sorry. I mean, the reason that it's obscured from us is that we are. Uh, we, we've had a lot of information that has come out over the last generation or two about an abusive relationship in horizontal terms, right? So, so in terms of like, just about everybody knows that in a marriage, what is an abusive relationship? If you're if you're dating someone, if you're in a marriage, well, you know, they they isolate you, they put you down, they verbally abuse you, they embarrass you, they shame you, they they may hit you, they may. Um, uh, sabotage you, they may spend your money, they may, you know, it may be one-sided, it, it may be, you know, whatever it is, right? Those are the signs of an abusive relationship. I don't know, you know, what, I'm certainly no particular expert on it, uh, but um, uh, there are lots of, uh, lots of signs about abusive relationships in horizontal dating uh, relationships. And um, uh, that's something that, that we're all Becoming aware of now, a lot, not a lot of people. Sorry, a lot of people are still not able to uh, to solve that um, that issue. You know, so get out of these relationships and so on, right? Um, so 
you know, so I just, just looked one up here. So let's see here. Signs of an abusive relationship. So uh, someone pushes for quick involvement, comes on strong. I've never felt I've loved anyone like this before, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's jealousy, possessive, calls constantly, visits unexpectedly, right? And again, if we translate these to parents' things, right, these are signs of an abusive relationship. At least it would seem to me that that would be the case. Uh, he's controlling, right? Interrogates you about who you talked to and where you were, checks mileage on the car, uh, asks for receipts, insists you ask for permission to go anywhere or do anything. Um, unrealistic expectations. A uh, person expects you to be the perfect person to meet their every need. This isolation um, tries to cut you off from family and friends, deprives you of a phone or car, tries to prevent you from holding a job. He blames others for his own mistakes or her own mistakes. Uh, is, do you have a parent who, who blames everyone else for anything that's going wrong. It's always someone else's fault if anything goes wrong. Um, do you have a parent who makes everyone else responsible for their feelings? The abuser says, you make me angry instead of I'm angry. I wouldn't get so pissed off if you wouldn't habada habada habada, right? So again, this is, this, uh, this is just some, some thoughts about it. Again, I don't claim any expertise in this. Um, there is verbally abuse. He criticizes you or says cruel things, degrades, curses, calls you ugly names. Use, he will use vulnerable points about your past and life against you. Um, sudden mood swings, switches from angry to loving in a matter of minutes. Um, a, a past hit, a history of hitting, uh, threats of violence, uh, and so on. Um, and uh, so on. financial control, um, you know, obey me or, you know, you don't get any inheritance, whatever it is. So, so again, this is just off the top of my head, just something I did a quick search of. And the reason it's hard to see with parent relationships is that we've had a lot of information about uh, how to spot abuse in uh, dating relationships and horizontal relationships. But it's really hard to see it uh, in, um, uh, in parental relationships. And there is, um, uh, as I've mentioned before, there is quite a bit of uh, change in the psychological field these days, psychological and psychiatry uh, fields uh, in, these, uh, uh, in these relationships. Um, so uh, Dr. Phil, I think I mentioned this before, but Dr. Phil has an advisory board composed of you know, Dr. Philip Zimbardo and other past presidents of the American Psychological Association and other, you know, all the top luminaries uh, in the field, and they review the stuff that's on the website. And uh, in one of his articles, um, it basically says, um, if you were abused, uh, it says the emotional wounds caused by parental abuse can last long beyond childhood. If you want to rebuild the relationship with your parent now that you're both adults, Dr. Phil has some advice. Uh, one, be heard. You won't be able to repair the relationship until your parent fully understands how the abuse has affected you. He or she may feel guilty, but you're the one who needs to be helped, right? So this is something I've been saying for years and years, uh, which is if you have issues with your parents, it's really important to sit down and communicate with them and attempt to be heard as much as possible. Uh, and second is redefine the relationship. It's up to you to express yourself. Tell your parent what you need now that you're not getting. Be honest and clear. This is your chance to say exactly what you need emotionally. Uh, nothing can change the past, but you can create a new history with your parent. Treat each other as the people you are now. Uh, number three, do what is best for you. Consider the possibility that it may not be healthy to have any sort of relationship with your parent. It's a difficult pill to swallow, and it should be used as the last option. However, it may be the option that helps you the most. And um, I think that's uh, important. Um, you can find that at drphil.com forward slash articles forward slash article forward slash 35, and there's lots of other things there too. So, you know, I know that sometimes people hear me talking about uh, parents and abuse and, and voluntarism and, and so on. 
and they're all kinds of shocked, but uh, it, this really is, um, it's mainstream. I don't think anyone can tell someone, you know, unless they're in imminent physical danger that you've got to get out of a relationship, but uh, it is very uh, mainstream uh, in psychological circles to remind people that uh, it may be healthy to have no relationship with your parent at all if you uh, continue to be stuck in a cycle of abuse and so on. And it is, it is hard. It's hard for people uh, to, to hear that. We have this, this old thing, right? I, sorry, I know you want to talk about something else, but just, you know, we have this old thing, honor thy mother and thy father. We've, you know, those of us who are into philosophy have looked at a lot of the Ten Commandments and found them to be somewhat wanting, but that's one of the ones that is tough. So I just wanted to point out that I'm really sorry about that this is where it got to, but um, if that's what's best for you, I'm certainly not yeah, going to criticize Yeah, I appreciate it. that. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, it, I mean, it, one of the things, one of the most nefarious things my mom would say, and it took me a long time to really see the implications of it, is she would say that, well, she believed in this like new age spiritual stuff, right? So she would say, you know, you actually chose to come into our family, mm. right? Yes, I've heard and that. Uh, I've heard that theory as well. So basically, I realized that that was basically like um, putting the the onus on me, right? So everything was my fault, right? Because I chose, I chose to come into the the family originally, right? Right. Now, I've, I've heard that theory before, the idea that we sort of float, our souls float above the world, and we have something to learn from our families, and that's why we choose them. And, I mean, I've, I've heard that. It's insane, of course. It's completely deranged. But even if it were true, I don't see how that would alter anything. I mean, it's like saying, well, you know, some guy beats up on his wife. It's like saying, well, you chose to get married to me, so you can't leave. It's like, no. I mean, people make mistakes in marriage all the time. And so even if you – I mean you choose to get married, you can choose to get divorced. So even if you did choose to to enter into your family of origin, I don't see why that would mean you would have to stay forever. I mean what, what on earth would that have to do with anything? Unless there's some sort of master spiritual thing like you just have – anyway, it's such an insane idea. It's probably not even worth discussing. But anyway, go on. Right. Well, anyways, the whole – this whole process has me, like I said, questioning the nature of love because um, based on what you said in the book on truth, you know, that love is um, an involuntary response to virtue in another person, something like that, right? Um, it makes me kind of, it made me kind of realize that I guess it, by that definition, really, I don't have any experience of love in my entire life, you know? I know. Yes, I'm, I'm very sorry about that. Uh, I'm incredibly sorry about that. If you grow up in a, in a very dysfunctional household, love is... A distant rumor at best. And what do you get instead of love? You get neurotic attachment and sexual lust. Uh, if, if, my, if my 20s is any indication, uh, I'm sorry to mean to laugh because it's, it, it, is tra it is tragic. But the problem is when you're surrounded by toxic people, they are a human shield against virtuous people. You know, what on earth was any decent man or woman going to have to do with my mom? Like, they were, what on earth would they ever have to do with her? It would make no sense for them whatsoever to, to sort of come into her life and, and, and be friends with her, right? It is truly tragic that when you grow up with dysfunctional people, love is a galaxy away. And, and it's, it's not something you ever even hear of. 
you know, let's say that there's, you know, a 5 or 10% variation in toxicity that's possible in a relationship. So somebody who's like 80% toxic might hang out with someone who's 75% toxic or 85% toxic or whatever, right? So think of these concentric rings, these shields around you when you find people who are not only 85%, not, not 85% toxic, but 85% healthy. I mean, you're talking like 20 degrees of separation, right? Like 20 people who would know each other, you're 20 layers away from a healthy person. And that's assuming that it's as optimal as possible. It's probably like 40 or 50. And you're never going to meet these people. And so it is tragic the degree to which the concentric rings of dysfunction that surround a child in a highly dysfunctional family keep virtuous people at bay and away. Uh, it really is. It really is tragic. You know, we should all, in a sense, be doing relief. With those the healthy of us, should all, in a sense, be doing relief work among the people who need help. But uh, in families, it's almost impossible because parents will. Dysfunctional parents will almost invariably, I believe, uh, keep healthy people away from their children because the healthy people will begin to provoke um, perspective in the children that are destructive to the selfish interests of the dysfunctional parents and so on. So it's really, uh, it's really tough. Uh, parents do not want to expose their children to functional people. Uh, parents want to be the pinnacle uh, of, of health and so on. And uh, I'm... I'm sorry, I, I'm, I know this is a long lecture and I, I do want to listen to what, what you want to say, but I, I believe you. I really believe you when you say that you didn't know what love was. I didn't find it till I was in my 30s uh, and I didn't, I didn't even know really what I was missing. And there's such, let me just tell you one last thing too. You know, there's such a, uh, when I was in a, a bad relationship in my 20s, the reason why it was so hard to get out of it was because everyone around me approved of that relationship and thought it was good and great. And, and, and when I, you know, my brother went to help me find a ring to, to marry this crazy woman and, and, you know, my mom didn't say anything when I announced and all this. Everybody was kind of in on it, right? And to, to peel back the layers of how destructive that relationship was exposed a hell of a lot more than me and my girlfriend, It exposed everybody around who was the support structure who either couldn't see that that relationship was dysfunctional, which meant that they were dysfunctional, or saw that it was dysfunctional and felt that it was just great and fine and dandy and wonderful for me to be in that kind of relationship. You see, when I got out of that relationship, that's when everything began to fall apart for me. Because our dating relationships are mirrors of our original relationships, of our family, of origin relationships. And that's what, if you get out of dysfunctional relationships, I mean, just imagine, right? You get out of dysfunctional relationships and then you go meet someone really healthy, confident, wise, articulate, curious, empathetic, virtuous, all these kinds of things, right? And then you take that new lover, genuine lover, and you take that lover to your crazy messed up family. Well, what's going to happen? Are they going to like her? No. 
is she going to like them? Hell to the no. <laughs> right? I mean, my wife has never met my mother. They share the name. <laughs> but my wife has never met my mother and never will. Um, I couldn't do it. I just, I couldn't do it. So this is the problem. If you try to swim away from, you know, the dismal, dirty, volcanic ash and lava spiky little island of dysfunction it's 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 not something that you can you can't blend the two you can't sort of drag that island to a better place to me you, you've just got to leave that island of screwed up people and get to someplace healthy you know they all made their choices they all had their lives you can either stay with them to no purpose whatsoever other than to repeat to to repeat the dysfunctional spiky unicorn horned gouging dna of dysfunction or you can go to someplace healthier i've not this is my opinion it's not an absolute this is not a reasoned argument i think there's good reasons behind it i've not been able to find a way to to join health and sickness together to join virtue and vice together to join love and exploitation together these two tribes are at war forever for the future hopefully not forever hopefully not forever and so uh, if you are looking for love, there are things that must be left behind if they can't be fixed. But go ahead. Well, I, I wanted some clarification, though, because you said that um, the, the sort of bond between, like, you know, parent and child, um, let's say, for example, the parent is an enlightened person, right? Even so, it's, that's more like you said it was an attachment in the book, right? It's not mature love. Is, I mean, is that... Is, I mean, is that a right way of putting it, or? Oh, do you mean when I did a podcast called "Your Children Do, do Not Love You"? Well, in on truth, you also mentioned that, like, uh, like for example, the bond between a mother and and her child. That's not. It's more like a form of attachment than, than you know, a mature love. Well, absolutely. Is that, is that... Look, I mean, we can we can all understand that that when a baby is seven days old, you don't love it for its virtue, right? Right. Unless by virtue you mean pooping so ferociously that you've got to clean the wall, right? <laughs> that's, yeah. not, that's not virtue, right? Um, so you don't love a child for the child's virtue. And the other thing, too, is that, of course, you hope that you teach your children virtue through your own example and through, uh, through verbal instruction. You teach your child about virtue. And then you're not loving that child for the child's virtue, in a sense, any more than if you teach the child the correct word for tree, you don't love the child because the child knows the correct word for tree because that's kind of narcissistic, right? Hey, all these things I taught you, I love you for all the things that I taught you and so on. And of course, the child doesn't have a comparison between you and other people and the child does not have a choice in the relationship and the power imbalance is so enormous between a child and a parent that it's really, you know, that there's no choice, uh, there's no... Um, I mean, obviously, you try and inculcate choice as much, but my daughter doesn't have the choice to say, well, you know, baldy, uh, <laughs> I've had enough of your yammering. I think I'm going to go and uh, try out another family for a while, uh, and I'll let you know how it goes, right? I mean, there's, there's nothing, um, nothing like that that occurs. So I can't compare the kind of love that I have with my daughter uh, with the kind of love that I have with my wife, who has choice and virtue and has earned all these great things and, and you know, come through many struggles to be such a, an amazing and wonderful and delightful and funny and warm and caring and committed person. 
I just I can't compare the two. Now, I think that as a child grows, I think that you can get more love in the um, uh, in the relationship, more sort of adult to adult respect and love. But it's you know it's really it's really hard to to use to use the same kind of word um, for you know an infant for an infant that you would with with an adult. I just think that wouldn't wouldn't make a huge amount of sense. But but sorry, go ahead. Well, do you think that that form of like I don't know I'd call it attachment love maybe or something like that is um, something that uh, in a lot of relationships with parents never so it just stays at that stage it never matures to an actual reciprocal sort of love right? Well, I don't think it can stay at that stage, right? So there's um, somebody um, Laurie mentioned in the chat. Um, there's a bond uh, oxytocin. Uh, that occurs. Uh, it's, a, it's a chemical bonding that occurs, which is similar to, obviously, uh, it's similar in, not in content, but just in sort of, you know, when you when you meet someone you're very sexually attracted to, there's a lot of hormones and so on that, that kick in. And, and this usually doesn't work out <laughs> very well. You know, it's nature's very primitive way of making a baby um, in, in a very sort of fly-by, fly-by kind of way. But um, uh, the bond that occurs, first of all, this bond is not it certainly doesn't occur with everyone. I mean, lots of people just don't don't have the capacity for this bond. You know what is called postpartum depression. Um, I don't really know much about it, but it's one of these things that sounds very suspicious to me. But some with some people, the bond doesn't occur at all, and uh, that that sets you up for a hell of a rough time because you know babies are very hard work, and uh, the bond is. <laughs> so that you'll do the work, and if you if you have to do the work without the bond, it's really hard. And I think you miss out on one of nature's great, uh, beauteous sunlit moments of uh, of attachment and and uh, merging in a positive way. Uh, if you don't have that bond, um, oh, she says she has a whole blog on that. If you'd like to give me the blog, I will uh, pass it along to the listeners. But um, uh, so I, I think that a lot of times there is this attachment, there is this excitement about the baby. And then the problem is, of course, that the children then begin to have ideas that are different from the parents. And of course they, they do, right? Because most of the parents' ideas have nothing to do with reality, right? I mean, the, 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 the nationalism, the superstition, the religiosity, the, I mean, you name it, the, the, the cultural nonsense that goes on, uh, it's completely anti-empirical. And so the children don't agree with the parents at all and find the parents' thoughts as they get older kind of incomprehensible and they find the parents hypocrisy so often pretty incomprehensible you know the parent who yells at you not to yell and hits you for hitting and I mean, it's just crazy right and so what happens is the 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 natural rational empiricism of the child collides with the house of cards personalities of the parents that is built on culture that is built on lies nonsense right I mean, we drive to the United States. Why do we have to stop at a border? I mean, we can make up these words to tell my daughter, well, you see, we're, tr- we're, we're, trans- we're, we're going from Canada to the United States. But what the hell does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, that doesn't explain to her anything. It doesn't tell her anything. I mean, do we then say to her, well, you see, there are guys with guns who run this particular gangland and there are guys with guns who run this particular gangland and they don't want people slipping from one zoo cage to another and well I can't tell her that yet so um, there's a lot of things that 
the natural and curious empiricism of children collides against the incredibly fragile you know, spider spring, spider string superstructure of the parents' false selves, and the false selves react with attack. And, and the attack is how the irrationality reproduces itself. Irrationality always reproduces itself through attack because it doesn't have good arguments. Right? If you want to know the general mental state of humanity, just look at comments on, on, the, uh, on the internet. Uh, this, is, this is all of the irrationality that's striving to reproduce itself through attack. Uh, irrationality has nothing of value to offer other than relief from attack, right? I mean, it's like um, when Winston Smith in 1984 um, loves O'Brien because O'Brien stops torturing him. Well, that's all irrationality has to offer is the cessation of pain that it itself is inflicting, which is also called the law. So, the Blue Moon Turtle Blog dot blogspot dot com. The Blue Moon Turtle Blog dot blogspot dot com. I really believe that should be a sting title album. Anyway, so um, so I think it, it actually does deteriorate quite quickly, even if there is that bonding at the beginning when curiosity hits culture. Uh, the result is almost invariably abuse of some kind or another. Doesn't or it seem to, se- seem to repeat in um, adult relationships where you have this sort of like, you know, the romance period which uh, kind of withers away and that, it, you know, then you actually get into the meat and bones of it and it's just all false, right? So it's like a repetition of, of what you did with your parents if they were irrational, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the consolation prize for love is, is, is lust and, and codependency and attachment and all that kind of stuff. That's, uh, that is the consolation prize. Like nature itself, that, it doesn't give a shit how you make a baby, frankly. I mean, it cares to some degree in that it, you know, wants someone to be around to raise the baby. But, you know, I think in the ideal healthy scenario, it wants, you know, a pair-bonded couple who can raise the child and give it love and all these kinds of juicy, wonderful things. But, you know, in the absence of that, which was mostly absent throughout human history, in the absence of that, it's like, hey, you know, big tits, uh, pec muscles, go to it. Have sex. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't. So it'll, you know, the consolation prize for love is lust, and it is, frankly, dissatisfying, and in the long run, it's kind of shameful. And the reason that it's kind of shameful is it's very hard to to be honest with yourself about lust, right? So if you say, if you basically say, "Well, I just want to fuck this person because they're so hot." I mean, I guess I know some of the, the, the players out there and the, the guys, uh, you know, the, the sort of seduce and destroy guys, they're very honest about it, um, I guess. If you want to call that honesty, I suppose it's honesty. But it's very hard to be honest about, about this kind of stuff. It was for me. Like, I remember wanting to go out with this girl just because I found her sexy. Uh, and I was going to ask her to a dance in grade nine or something like that. And uh, she was just, she was sexy. And she was a, a total troll as a human being. I mean, it was nasty and unpleasant and coarse and all this kind of stuff. And I just remember, you know, people were bugging me. Who are you, who are you going to ask to the dance? Who are you going to ask? I'm going to ask this girl. And everybody immediately gave me this look like, yeah, okay. We know she's sexy, but she's a total troll. What are you doing, right? And unfortunately, she made some really coarse joke and laughed like, you know, a hyena suddenly surprised by an electric toothbrush in the nether regions. And... Uh, it was. I felt ashamed because I couldn't be honest. You know, well, she's sexy, and that's why I want to ask her to the dance. Now, 
I mean, I was 14. What the hell would I know what to do with sexy? But nonetheless, you know, the hormones were still raging away. And uh, so but it's hard to be honest about lust, which is to say I basically want to use someone as an orifice, as a human Kleenex, and then toss them aside. I don't like this person, but I will have, you know, intimate sexual vulnerability with that person, uh, even though she repulses me as a, <laughs> as a human being, you know, as a warm, wet hole, she's, she'll do the trick. So it's, it's, you know, without sort of colliding with your own inner sociopathy, it's really hard to be honest about lust. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's kind of shameful afterwards, because it's the degree, anything which, which tempts you to lie to yourself is innately dangerous, right? Anything which tempts you to have to reshape your motives and to pretend that you're doing something other than what you're doing is innately dangerous. And uh, lust is one of these things that is the case. I would actually, you know, just by the by, you know, let me just, just by the by, I want to sort of mention this very, very quickly. Um, one thing I wish that, you know, with men, I don't know if this is the case with you, but with men, if you decide that you want to just go out with some girl because she's hot, then at least if you have friends like mine, they'll roll their eyes at you. Like they'll, when I was sort of in my 20s or whatever. I mean, so some of them might be envious or whatever, but, and I certainly did date some extremely attractive uh, young ladies when I was younger, but they will kind of roll their eyes, like, because they get what's going on. I do kind of wish that women would start to do this a little bit more as well. I don't just mean with the hot guys. I mean, that's so obvious. Who even bothers, right? But, you know, like, I mean, at some point, the girl, uh, w- young women or girls, I like guess more girls, they have to sort of say, oh, come on, you know, <laughs> you're into Justin Bieber because he's such a wonderful, kind, virtuous guy who drives drunk and beats up photographers. Um, so, I mean, at some point, you know, it has to be, you know, oh, they're just pretty boys, right? That's fine, you know, okay, we all like looking at pretty people, but... That's not where you, you know, stick the wick of your future anywhere close to. Uh, and the other, but more importantly than that, uh, I would like to start to see women roll their eyes when someone's just obviously going for the provider, like the alpha male provider. So, you know, if, if some woman is like, uh, oh, you know, he's great. He's going to be a lawyer. He's this and that and the other. That, that'd be a little bit of eye rolling, you know, as in, well, you just want money, resources or whatever it is, right? I mean, your daddy's rich and your mama's good looking, as the song says, right? Summertime. I think it would be great if women would start to roll their eyes a little bit at each other when they were obviously just going for status, you know, pretty boys or money boys or whatever it is, uh, and just say, look, I mean, if you want love, if you want a great dad for your kids, you probably don't want some cold-eyed, fish-lipped lawyer uh, who may make partner because he's working 70 hours a week and he may give you a big house, but it's going to be as empty as the hearts of your children when all is said and done. I would like for there to be a little bit more skepticism about some of the natural drives that women have uh, in terms of wanting men with resources in the same way that there are there is some eye-rolling skepticism around men's natural drives to go for hourglass fertility silhouettes. Anyway, just want to mention. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the last thing I just want to ask you about love was um, – because I've not seen it in any of your podcasts specifically mentioned, but do you, do you have a concept of uh, – self-love uh like i don't know i guess just learning to love yourself authentically and i maybe that's a process of you know self-knowledge and the pursuit of you know understanding your your childhood and all that but i mean is there is there a concept of self-love that you kind of can you detail or yeah i mean to me self-love is like is like health 
right? So you, you, you can't aim directly at health, right? You, you just can't. You, you can't aim directly at weight loss, right? You can't say, today I'm going to be healthy and lose weight. What you can do is you can aim to, to exercise, you can aim to, to, to eat well, you can you know, aim to expand your knowledge about whatever activities are necessary to, to make or to keep you healthy. But you can't aim at health. Health is an effect of specific actions that you can take. And each of those actions have to be studied uh, and have to be understood and have to actually be enacted, right? I mean, we've all had that moment where, you know, you, you've had a good meal and, you know, like, so I, <clears throat> I've gained five pounds doing, doing chemo. Why? <laughs> because I'm a contrarian? I don't know. Well, I know why. It's because um, I got this um, chemical taste in my mouth from the chemo and uh, I have to eat to... I can't, even gum doesn't really help, but I have to sort of eat to make it go away. And it, so I put on a little bit of weight during chemo, which is, I think is kind of the opposite. And so we all have these moments where you have, oh, should I eat this? Should I not eat this? And you put it down. You say, oh, yeah, it was a good meal, but I'm not going to have the cheesecake. I'm just not going to do it. Or you're at the grocery store and you're like, oh, I, I like chips and onion dip. It's one of my <laughs> weaknesses. I haven't had it for years. I've had it during chemo because it's one of the few things that takes away that taste. And so you're at the grocery store and you're like, ooh, three for $8. I should buy them. And you're like, nope, you know what? Because if they're not in the house, I'm not going to eat them. And if they're in the house, I'm going to eat them. And so you, you, just, you just make those choices. Now, the end result of making a whole bunch of those choices is hopefully you get some weight loss or you get some health or you get whatever it is that, that you're aiming for. It's the same thing with self-love. It's the same thing with self-love. You just are conscious of your decisions. You find a woman attractive well, you scan her, you know, boop, 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 boop. you get your tricorder of FDR virtue detection out, right? And you ask her about her childhood and you ask her and you, you examine her, her uh, capacity for self-knowledge. You, you examine her capacity for self-criticism, right? <clears throat> I went out with a woman um, many years ago. She never understood. I went on two or three dates with her and she never understood why I didn't call her again. But the reason I didn't call her again... <laughs> Was because she, you know, she find, oh yeah, I was in this, I was in this relationship for like two years, and we were living together, and then, you know, one day I came home and he, he just cleared his stuff out and moved away. I didn't even know where he'd gone. Uh, he didn't leave a note. He, I didn't have, I had no idea, had no idea that anything was wrong. He had just cleared up and moved out of our condo, and he was just gone. And I, I, I never saw him again. No, still to this day, have no idea. No idea what happened with him. <laughs> right? Thank you for playing <laughs> pole position Steph. But this ride is now closed. <laughs> right? Um, uh, so, and we didn't actually have sex because third date. Are you kidding? Anyway, but um, uh, so, so you just, you scan and you look and you can either make those choices or you can fog out from those choices. You can either specifically say, is this good-tasting cheesecake that's going to give me a heart attack? Is this going to James Galdolfini me into an early grave? Or is this something that is really good for me or not? You just have to be conscious of it. Make those decisions. Be, be skeptical and critical with your friends, with your family, uh, with yourself, and aim for virtue. Aim to find the right people in your life. Aim to find the people you can talk with. Aim to find the people who make you a better person. Aim to find the people who can listen, who can help you in life's journey towards the summit of virtue that we should all be striving towards. And when you make those specific decisions, you end up with self-respect and you end up with self-love, but you can't aim at it directly, right? I mean, this is, I did this interview recently with a guy who's uh, skeptical of self-esteem 
and self-esteem, you know, I mean, I think it's just, you know, accurate or inaccurate evaluations of the self. You know, as a philosopher, I'm pretty good. As a gymnast, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> what does it mean to have self-esteem? Well, just have an accurate evaluation of your own capacities and so on. Uh, but um, uh, just just try and do the right thing. And each of those specific decisions will lead you more and more towards self-respect. But you can't aim at it directly. And the idea that you can encourage people to have self-respect by telling them that they're worthy of respect um, it's like it's just like yelling at your fat to go away. I mean, it, <laughs> I guess uh, it's yeah. just not going to work, right? So uh, I hope that that helps. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask if self-love has to precede, uh, you know, mature love for somebody else, but it sounds more complicated than that. It's more, it's not just uh, a to b kind of thing, right? Well, I mean, it is kind of a truism that you you have to love yourself in order to be loved, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've never really cottoned on to the concept of self-love very much. I mean, other than the, uh, you know, baby oil and uh, <laughs> a Tom Waits record. What does he say? Making a scene with a magazine. Uh, one of his old songs. Of course, that won't mean that won't mean anything to anyone with a DSL connection. But, um, but um, uh, I, I don't. I self. I wouldn't sort of say that I wake up and I love myself. Um, I, I don't. I think I, I respect the choices that I've made. I've made some good choices. I've made some bad choices. I strive to um, consistently make as good a choices as I can. I give myself the the forgiveness and and latitude to make bad decisions in complicated and unprecedented situations, with the full knowledge that my adult self is largely constructed from philosophy and not inherently or organically inherited from from history. Um, so I certainly, you know, I'm happy with what I'm doing in the world. I'm happy with the degree of virtue that I'm bringing to the world. Uh, I am satisfied that I'm doing as good a job uh, as I reasonably can with the resources at my disposal and the abilities that I have, which are limited like everyone's. But I wouldn't, you know, I sort of get out of bed every morning and, you know, James Brown, I step back, I kiss myself. <laughs> I mean, that's not, you know, my, I think that's sort of like, uh, I'm the greatest, you know, that kind of stuff that doesn't really resonate with me. Um, I think maybe you can feel that way if you've had your head jackhammered by George Foreman for about a month or so, like Muhammad Ali, but I just don't know that you can do that uh, when you're just, you know, striving to make your way through a challenging world and, uh, you know, trying not to get lynched. <laughs> that kind of thing is important. So, yeah, so I think that's... The, I, I don't know about self-love. I, I certainly I don't really think about it that much. Um, I you know I focus on how much I love my wife and my daughter, how much I love the show, how much I love the listeners, how much I'm proud of the conversation that we're all having. Um, but I don't know. Self-love has just never really resonated that much with me. But I just wanted to mention. Listen, I'm sorry. We must 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 get on to uh, the next caller. So I apologize for. The, okay. Um, Thanks a lot, uh, Steph. But yeah, great questions and um, yeah, well well done. All right, Corbin, you're up next today. Wonderful. Hello, Stefan. I knew you weren't going to be a young guy. I've never known anyone under 40 with the name Corbin. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> go on. <laughs> well, technically, now you know me, I'm just a hair under 40, so I, Are I you? do fill the role. Okay, fair yeah, enough. Just a bit. Um, I'm uh, really excited to be on the call, and what I, what I wanted to talk to you about it affects me and my girlfriend as well. And uh, she's here with me listening. So if you need any de details from her, she, they're available. But um, I started dating 
her three years ago, three and a half years ago, and I started listening to FDR about two years ago. And what a wild ride that has been. We It totally changed our relationship and it became, you know, I, I started to become more real-time relationship-centric and uh, and that's been really cool. So there's just some gratitude there. But the background for us is that we both came from um, various forms of, you know, broken households. So um, in in my girlfriend's household, uh, she was the fourth child of her father. And just not long after that, uh, maybe six months within six months or a year, uh, her parents divorced. And the strange thing is, is that a little bit later than that, uh, they actually split up the kids. So they sent her three older siblings to live with her father. He insisted on that. He had some grand scheme that that would be a good idea and left my girlfriend with her mother. And and throughout their life, you know, she would sort of vie for his, you know, to be in his, like, to be in the spotlight with him. She she was attracted to being with her, her siblings. And there was a lot of family worship, like usual. And she, uh, it, about four years ago, she sent him a letter, sent her father a letter, because he was just deteriorating as a human being. I mean, he's completely pickled his brain with various intoxicants, um, including one that's, that's generally known as a date rape drug. Uh, Yikes. But he, so she, he applied yeah. that to himself? Oh yeah. Consistently, uh, like daily. I mean, he, it's, it's strange because he, yeah, he, it's GHB. Um, I don't even understand why anyone would ever put that in their self, but he does it regularly. So his brain is pickled. He's, he, I mean, I've, I've met the guy and he's, he's out there, his head's in the clouds big time. Yeah. Um, but luckily four years ago, she sort of, I mean, she began the process of ostracizing him. She sent him a letter and said, I need some space. I'll talk to you when I can, if I can, you know, just kind of left it open. Um, she sort of gave him a second chance, um, a couple of years ago and, and I was around for that. So I, I, that's when I sort of met him and I, and I didn't like him one bit. I mean, I, I, you know, I thought I can see he was charming, but he's a nightmare of, you know, just like hippie dippy craziness and, you know, no regard for the fact that he created children and then turned them against each other. And just, I mean, that he did awful things. Well, um, I mean, I, I think, I think to some degree, drugs are often involved with shame management, right? With, I've done bad things that I can't recompense, that I can't make restitution for, then to manage the guilt, uh, I use drugs. But anyway, that's neither here nor there, but, but go on. No, it's, it's totally accurate. I'm sure he's he's racked with guilt if he actually thinks about what he's done. But um, it, it, So as time went on, uh, she, you know, he would occasionally reach out with a text message or something, just really, just really pathetic te- text messages. Nothing you know, nothing heartfelt or like, Oh my God, I apologize. And let's try to have a relationship. Just, just sort of silly stuff that, that wasn't very meaningful. And eventually, um, we moved away 
from our, you know, we moved far away. We moved to Texas and he, you know, it was 20 hours away by car. So he, she gave him like one last chance, you know, do you want to like say goodbye to your daughter for a minute? And he, I mean, he completely dropped the ball and I'm so glad he did because it, it just showed that, you know, he had no interest in, in being, in healing the relationship or anything. And, uh, so she blacklisted him. I mean, she electronically he's blocked. He, he has no way in. So he, he's a done deal. But the question and, and the, and the answer will sort of apply to me as well, because I've, I've done the same thing sort of with a couple, like with my older sibling, my older sister who was abusive. So the question is, do you think it's important to go through the, the actual explanation to him or just cutting him off because the cutoff has happened and now we're trying to figure out how important is it to actually detail to him even if it's just a letter that we never you know we there's no interaction but how important is it to detail to him why this has happened why would it be important to do that I'm not saying it's not. I'm just what would what would the theory be behind? Like if you say why would it be important to go to Pasadena? I'd be like, well, why why do you want to go to Pasadena, right? So, and if you if she's right. available to talk, it might be better to chat with her. But um, uh, unless she's actually using you as a <laughs> some sort of gravelly voiced hand puppet, but uh, why what would be what would the what would be the impetus to to get him to understand? What would that do? That's an excellent question. I, I, all I can imagine, I mean, the, the, I guess the reason that it, it um, haunts me and it, well, kind of haunts us in our in our own ways is that, you know, I I don't want it to be a situation where that person can just uh, just say, oh yeah, they just whacked out on me and stopped taking my calls. I, it it feels like if they if they at least just knew that it was an official thing and maybe a couple of reasons why or however detailed that there'd be no mistaking that it was on them or that at least that it was like, Hey, you did this. This was, it was your chance to have a good relationship and you were an abuser. And Oh, okay. So, so you want him to not say things that are untrue about why the relationship ended? I, I suppose it's, yes. Yeah. I think that's the okay. main thing. You you can criticize that approach, I'm sure, quite easily, right? Why why does that seem like an odd perspective? I suppose the first thought is you're ostracizing this person. Why would you really care? I mean, why why are you why are you looking to them for um, you know for any kind of um, validation? Well, you're assuming that the person is going to have the integrity to understand, the integrity to be honest, the 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 self knowledge to self criticize, and not to take retreat in lies or drugs or or falsehoods and so on, right? And based upon the pattern of the person's behavior throughout life, that seems like sort of asking the impossible. Like, I want this guy to now grow a conscience. I want him to uh, have integrity. I want him to be honest. I want him to reveal things that put him in a very negative light to other people around him. I want those other people to respect and, and respond positively to his honesty. And I mean, it seems to me like you're just trying to look for an alternate dimension where he's a different person. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. And I, and I, I feel like I knew that we knew that 
Um, and I think that's why we really haven't bothered being too detailed with anyone. Um, I've, I've withdrawn from a, a few family members and, um, I know for my girlfriend, it was her father was the main, the main one, and and so that that makes a lot of sense. I, you know, I could just it's, under the surface, you know, that it doesn't matter that much. It matters what we do with ourselves. Yeah, she's look. It she she's matter. had decades to connect with the guy, and it hasn't worked. And I'm incredibly sorry about that. I mean, I want to just pause on that and not just sort of blithely go on. But that's it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's heartbreaking. I mean, those of us with dysfunctional parents, we we don't want the burden, right? We don't want the challenge. We just, you know, just be helpful, be, be useful, be wise, be, you know, just don't be some combination of, you know, King Lear and Mike Tyson or whatever the hell it's going to be, right? So I, I just want to, like, I'm incredibly sorry that this is even something that's that's in your lives. I just want to say this to, to your girlfriend as well. I mean, it's wretched. I mean, this is not where you want to be in your life with your father, right? I mean, you want him to be someone who is enjoyable to spend time with, who makes you feel better, who's, you know, your, your port of call in a storm, who is a, a soft place to land, who is your cheerleader, your supporter, uh, and who can see keenly around the corners of life and help you avoid problems and mistakes. I mean, this is, this is who you want in your life. And I'm very sorry that you have this, you know, brain-addled wreck of a, a human being who seems to have made some pretty pretty bad decisions, to put it as nicely as possible. And I'm really sorry this is even in your life. The only other thing that I would say, and I really want to say this to people as a whole, so I'm sorry to use you as a bully pulpit, but I'll keep it brief. And if you love someone and people in their life are doing harm to that person, are making them angry or upset or hurt or something like that, help them. Help them. Give them clarity. Ask them questions. Get the history. Figure out the standards of behavior. I mean, this is the most important thing, I think. Just figure out standards of behavior that you can universalize. Figure out standards of behavior. I don't want people in my life who lie to me. I don't want people in my life who silence me. I don't want people in my life who aren't curious about what I think and who I am. I don't want people in my life who exploit me. I don't want people in my life who use me. And I don't want people in the lives of those I love who do these things either. Let us throw ourselves as a shield over the hearts of those we love and help protect them from that which they often cannot see because it is not to the advantage of exploiters that we see them. Let us throw ourselves as a shield over the hearts of those we love and help them to see the people in their lives who are doing them harm and help them to either build the standards up and to have the conversations where the harm can be reduced, or if the harm can't be reduced, or only escalates, protect. Protect the hearts of those we love. We can't see our own histories very clearly. The histories of others we can see much more clearly, because you know, seeing your own history is like trying to hear a sound, like a little whine that you've heard for 30 years. I mean, you stopped hearing it 29.9 years ago. It's hard to see your own history. But, you know, if your girlfriend was in a zoo and you knew a tiger was out, you would rush to get her to safety. But there are tigers of the hearts. There are tigers of the soul. There are tigers of the mind. There are tigers from history. We must work to protect each other 
from the exploiters and the sociopaths and the psychopaths and the abusers. We must work to help protect each other. I believe we must work to protect the abusers from their own worst natures, if that is at all possible. If through conversation and if through provoking them into getting into therapy and getting whatever help they need to temper the ragged and silver-toothed edges of their own tempers, if that is possible, I think that's wonderful. If it is not possible, if there is no way to tame the tiger, stay safe from the tigers. And we must watch each other's backs about this. And don't fall into history that way. Don't fall into conformity that way. Don't be a salmon just swimming with the current of all that came before. But fight the tide because that's how we change the world and there's no other way to do it. So I just wanted to mention that. That's, um, I think that hit the spot. <laughs> I think that's Well, good. Exactly, I'll stop talking uh, then for once. <laughs> Not keep going on and on. Yeah, right. Don't do it. Don't even dream of stop talking. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that's absolutely what we needed to hear, both of us, because I, it, it, it was, you know, these thoughts were lurking. And I, just, I, I think that helped with the clarity. And we know we need to move forward. And I think that we've both tried to um, throw ourselves over the hearts of each other and, and be that shield. And I think that's why uh, she and I have a really great relationship that it just it it's just it seems to be as in my whole life i've never had a relationship that was so free of manipulation it's just really it's really wonderful and i it, it wasn't that way at first and and i attribute it to um to learning a lot from you and i'm i'm you know maybe like 700 podcasts into into the whole series and it's i mean every day it just i i weep every day and uh I really appreciate that very much. Well, good. And I'm listen. I'm very glad that you know. Usually, usually when when people say uh, I got into a relationship three years ago, I started listening to FDR two years ago. You know, what's usually the next sentence? <laughs> oh no! And what happened to my relationship? Ah, it's terrible, right? Um, so I'm incredibly glad that you guys were able to navigate the introduction of maybe it was not the first time or the introduction of philosophy and all this kind of stuff into your relationship. Man, good for you guys! Congratulations! And um, so I really wanted to to thank you for telling me that because you know it can be rough. And you know the the, the last thing I'll say is you know l- let the trolls have each other. You know, let the, you know, people, if you're, let's, let's say that that your girlfriend's father is like, well, she just stopped talking to me. I have no idea why I didn't do anything. Right. I mean, this is, this is the great, what what was it? Somebody, I just read that the signs of an abuser is somebody who blames everyone else for everything that happens. That's abusive because it puts the burden on everyone else. It demands that everyone else change and it demands that everybody else carry the weight of that person's dysfunction. That is, that is really destructive. And it also puts everyone else in a constant state of anxiety because then when anything goes wrong, somebody is going to have to be paid. So Someone's going to have to pay for it. Somebody's going to be lashed out. Somebody's going to be hurt and attacked for it. But you see, it's not just your father's, the, your girlfriend's father's integrity that would be necessary for that letter. It would be the integrity of everyone around him. Right? So, so if your father says, well, my daughter just stopped seeing me and I didn't do anything and for absolutely no reason. Right, um, I didn't do. I was, the, I was, you know, I was a great dad, but she, I don't know. She just fell in with the wrong crowd. She got under the wrong influence. 
She listened to a podcast, bam, 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 or something like that, right? I mean, anybody with any brains whatsoever would say to that person, come on, what are you saying? Are you saying that a 30-year, close, bonded, wonderful relationship vanished for no reason whatsoever? I mean, when I was dating this girl in my 20s, dating, three dates, and she said her relationship ended for no reason whatsoever, and she never... I mean, that's just... The reason I stopped dating her was just, that's completely unbelievable. Because there are two possibilities, right? <laughs> let, me, let me sort of tell you another little story. So, um, I met a girl in yoga class when I was in my 20s, and we ended up chatting, and we agreed to go to a movie together. And I was going to go and meet some friends to go and see a movie. And uh, this is when I was in therapy. No, I guess it was my, was it my early 30s. And it doesn't matter. Anyway, so, so this woman, um, uh, I said, you know, I said, love to see a movie with you, but this is sort of prearranged, so you're going to have to hurry to come out uh, because we're going to, you know, meet my friends in, in 20 minutes, and it's a 10-minute walk to the movie. So if you could just, you know, real quick, that would be great. And she said yes. And she came out 45 minutes later. And, you know, we were very late. Uh, seeing the movie and all this, that, and the other, right? And she didn't sort of say, wow, you know, I, didn't, I lost track of the time, this, that, and the other. And I was talking about this with my therapist. And my therapist said, um, and I said, I said, I don't know whether she remembered that she'd agreed to come out in 10 minutes and came out in 45 minutes with no apology. I don't know if she remembered that or had completely forgotten. And my therapist said, what does it matter? And that was a very important moment for me because it's when you stop trying to figure out the motives of crazy people that you begin to become truly free in this world. Because crazy people, almost by definition, the whole point is that you can't figure out their motives. I would go to my grave not knowing what makes my mother tick. Like I don't. I've lived with her for years, years and years and years. I still have no idea why she feels certain things, why she has these, why, why she had responses to this, that, and the other, why, why she fixated on this, that, and the other. I do know that as her romantic attraction waned, she became much more into conspiracy theories. I know that. But, you know, what, what, the whole point is you can't figure out the motives of crazy people because they're crazy. It's like Brownian motion. Predict it. You can't. It's Brownian. <laughs> it's the point, right? And there is such a relief and such a liberation in no longer trying to figure out what makes crazy people tick. Why are they doing this? What was their motive in that? Why did they blow up at this? Why did they, why were they calm about that? doesn't matter. You know, if you get a thousand piece puzzle, like a jigsaw puzzle, and each piece of the puzzle comes from a different jigsaw puzzle, you will never put it together. You will never put it together. Because the pieces don't fit. And they're disparate and they're broken up. And they don't mesh. I don't try to puzzle out crazy people. And I haven't for years. I go, hey, they're crazy. This puzzle doesn't fit together, so I don't sit there trying to jam all the pieces together, getting frustrated. doesn't fit. And the other thing, too, is that you know, crazy people, they have no center. Everything is a manipulation. 
everything is a manipulation. And therefore, any time... And now, people who manipulate hate having rules imposed upon them because rules are the opposite of manipulation, right? Religion is manipulation. Science is rules. Fraud is manipulation. Math is rules. Culture is manipulation. Philosophy is rules. And people who want to exploit and manipulate you never want any rules, any standards, because rules and standards puts limits on their behavior. They can be universalized, which is the opposite of exploitation. And so the point with crazy people is they want ultimate freedom for themselves, which means that their personalities have nothing to do with any predictable rules. It is only the expediency of the moment to maximize what they get and minimize what it costs them at everybody else's expense. It's literally like trying to hold a cloud to try and figure out what makes a crazy person tick. Manipulators and exploiters and abusers are only looking to win in the moment, will make up whatever bullshit rules they can make up to win in the moment. There is no center to the personality. There are no rules to the personality. There is no physics to the magic madness of their non-being. And so trying to figure out crazy people is a complete waste of time. It is literally trying to, it's like trying to, to get your physics from the Bible. It is like trying to get your morality from the tax code. That's not what it's for. And if I could harness the solar power, the literal solar power of everyone's mind in the world who spends so much time and energy, as I did for many years, trying to find patterns in craziness, well... Jung would have been listened to Mandela's and we would literally be able to power the planet with all the saved psychological energy. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that, but congratulations. Uh, it sounds like you guys are doing well. and It's great, great, great to hear. So if we can move on to the next caller, I would really appreciate that. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you. All right, Joe, you are up now. Good morning, Stefan. Um, hello, hello. Short... Short-time listener, big-time fan. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> the, the last 10 years, I've been researching areas scientists have been neglecting, so um, I've been pretty much blinded to the advancements of our crashing economy until recently when a lot of your shows have been uh, uh, opening my eyes. Um um, I know uh, there's so much propaganda like the, from the economists and the government to make uh, investing in our country attractive, but they're uh, snowballing us to the fact that uh, housing prices are all inflationary and market growth is all inflationary, yet uh, they make it sound like, uh, oh, the, the market is growing. Meanwhile, we're crashing uh, underneath the piles of debt and um, and it's getting very much tougher uh, as it goes along. Is there a question you wanted to ask? Otherwise, I could go on a generic ramble, but that might not be as focused as would be helpful. Oh, um, I'm just wondering uh, your your thoughts on to, to all this uh, propaganda and everything that we have all been manipulated and uh, believe that uh, everything's rosy and meanwhile it's, it's crashing down around us. 
Yeah, I mean, there is a genuine sort of a basic reality check that I always look at when it comes to evaluating people's views of the economy or something like that. So, I mean, does the person talk about unfunded liabilities? Do they talk about debt, deficits, and so on? Do they have any sense of historical patterns uh, and so on? I mean, this is important. So, I mean, there are people like, you know, Paul Krugman, sorry, he always makes me cough up a hairball, but Paul Krugman and so on, and they talk about the need for more stimulus spending and, and this. I mean, this is, I mean, people who want to control other people want to replace the market with central planning, of course. Uh, people who are, you know, hollow, broken out sociopaths, for, I don't know what the hell this guy is. I mean, I don't know anything about his childhood or anything, but but I was reading a, an article in the New York Times about a political operative, like one of these um, West Wing kind of guys, uh, and where he came from. Well, uh, he was abandoned on a church doorstep in South Korea, spent the first couple of years of his life in a an orphanage, which was incredibly crowded. Uh, he was... Um, uh, he was raised by uh, one – he was adopted by one couple. The dad left when he was three, and then he had a stepdad who then also left, and then he had another dad who he's now estranged from. And I mean this is just a really pathologically disturbed upbringing. That doesn't mean the person can't be healthy, but it sure means that if they're in Washington, uh, power hungry for politics, that um, you know they're making up for some incredibly destructive deficiencies in their early uh, lives and the, they desire power over others to make up for a feeling of intense powerlessness and lack of connection and they wish to dominate others because the absence of others dominated them uh, as as a child all, all this sort of nonsense but um uh, there's um really crazy stuff that goes on and people who don't sort of start off by saying well you know we have this unsustainable system so what are we going to do i mean it's the first thing that i look for and the people who i like to hear talk, you know, the, the Peter Schiff's, the Doug Casey's, the Woody O'Brien's, the, the, the um, Jeff Berwick's, the people who, like, they actually have that founding in basic mathematical reality about uh, the, the degree to which the system is completely unsustainable. And literally, to me, it's like an airplane that is out of fuel, you know, still half a mile in the air, an airplane that is out of fuel over the uh, you know over the middle of the atlantic ocean and people are genuinely talking about how we're going to get to australia i mean if if they don't see the meh, 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 empty 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 we're out of fuel we're done there's no motive power to get to land let alone to australia on the other side of the world and this level of unreality is is really chilling when you when you look at it i mean when you read about people who are talking about the economy and so on. And, you know, there was this big kerfuffle recently about these professors who were saying that when, when debt to GDP goes over 90%, uh, you know, productivity crashes. And it turns out that they left a bunch of numbers and seemed to have jigged the numbers to make the case. And you know, it's a big scandal. And therefore now, uh, you know, austerity is, is bullshit and, and so on, right? You know, austerity occurred at the end of the, second, end of the First World War. Government spending went from like $7 billion down to $3 billion in a matter of a couple of years. I mean, can you imagine that? A cut of like 60% or so in actual, not just in projected growth, but in actual government spending. That's what used to happen when government was cut. And that's why the economy was able to absorb all the people coming back from World War I, uh, the, the, the millions of deaths from the Spanish flu, uh, and all of this mess that occurred with the Treaty of Versailles and the, the, the six 
thousand billion marks or something that Germany was supposed to pay up until the 1980s, right? That the economy could handle that because the government shrank, and and therefore there was this six-month or eight-month recession. Uh, I can't. It's pretty short relative to the Great Depression that started in 1929. It was just a very short, you know, sharp and corrected itself and so on. That that's what can happen. But the people who 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 through their own psychological pathologies and deficiencies wish to rule other people like w wish to to control other people they, they hate the free market because the free market puts them out of a job and so my sort of first basic question when somebody starts talking about the economy is do you know that it's not sustainable and it's vastly not sustainable well you see national debts aren't a problem really uh, you know we've had debts for a long time and nothing bad has happened well, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's literally like saying, well, I've been smoking two packs a day for 20 years. I'm not sick yet, am I? Oh, you're insane. I mean, you're just insane. I mean, so the people who just, they can't function or process any kind of reality because they're not interested in processing reality. They're interested in controlling people, which means that they just make, they just make up whatever lie they want. And so people who want to control other people, I mean, they love having propeller heads, intellectuals, Nobel Prize winners, who will say the government needs to increase its spending. Of course, they're going to be enormously popular, particularly in the left, right? Any, anyone who, right? All the people who say more spending uh, other than the military Keynesians of the Republican Party. Um, but all the people who say that we need more government spending, um, they're all handing power to the government because when the government gets to spend more, it gets to buy votes, right? It's how you stay in power, right? And this is a constant pattern that happens in the left, right? I mean, uh, after Obama's disastrous first term, um, why was he going to get reelected? Was this hopey, changey thing going to work again? Of course not. I mean, it was it was it was catastrophic. His record was even worse than Bush. He'd broken just about every campaign promise he made. And so, what did they have to do? Well, they had to they had to gym up the racism thing again, right? If you're against Obama, it can only be because you're a racist, which is an incredibly racist thing to say. You know, I can dislike someone for the content of the character, not just because of the color of their skin. In fact, I don't think I've ever disliked anyone for the color of their skin. And so, you know, you had to brew up this Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman thing so that you could get everyone talking and paranoid about race again so that people wouldn't say – so people would end up voting back in Obama so prove that they weren't racist. I mean, it's all – nonsense that people use whatever they want to gain power over over others and so on but um so yeah i, I agree with you that, that it's just a massive amount of unreality but they're not interested in reality right they're interested in power and to do that they have to ignore reality and uh i mean the the, the level of collusion that occurs among people in the media is is well documented uh, and uh, all of that kind of stuff so anyway just my uh, <laughs> my sort of two, two cents on it um, but right now, uh, my, my wife is sort of dependent on uh, some of the government programs because she's disabled. And uh, to her way of thinking, she's entitled to all this uh, because apparently she's paid into it. Meanwhile, I'm trying to explain to her, hey, that's not the way it works. But the government's got everybody uh, sort of brainwashed into believing that uh, they're the almighty God. So what is your take well, look, on I mean, you're, being uh, – I mean, Sorry, your, your wife's right in a way in that the money was taken from her, right? I mean, it's like the people who say, well, I, I should get Social Security because I paid into the system. Well, <clears throat> no, the money was taken from you by force, 
you didn't have a choice. It's like you paid into the system, like you know, some you put money in a piggy bank. I mean, it was it was taken from you by force. Uh, so from from the standpoint, from one standpoint, she's right. She did pay into the system, but it's it's more akin to saying, well, I I, I went to a casino and I paid into the system, so now I should get a huge payoff, right? It's like no, you gambled, and and when the government takes your money, it's a huge gamble. I mean, it's a gamble that pays off for some and doesn't pay off for others. But, you know, the people who are getting health care in America are getting three times more out of health care than they ever paid into it. And somebody's got to pay for that. And there's no money, right? There's no money uh, in the Social Security. There's only these treasuries, these IOUs, right? There's only debt. There's no money in the, in the Social Security system at all. Um, so <clears throat> the money is, you know, just been, it's been stolen. It's been spent. It's been used to bribe, or as Harry Brown used to say, it was used to prop up the Russian ruble 20 years ago for three hours so that somebody could make a pretty penny. But there's no, there's no money left. It doesn't go into a lockbox. It, it goes into the government's hands. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's just crazy. Um, I mean, if you if you leave your car, you know, you leave your Lexus in a ghetto, and you come back and it's been stripped. I mean, yeah, the people who took it were wrong, but. I mean, you left your Lexus in a ghetto, for God's sake. So, I mean, you give your money to the government, and, and they took it by force and so on, right? I get that. And I don't blame the people who fought against the system and said this is wrong because, you know, you fight against the system. They still, got, they still have all the guns and take your money at source. You can't get it back. But I, I think that, that we at least need the basic honesty to say that the fact that you paid into the system gives you no right to take out of the system. You can pay into a Ponzi scheme. That doesn't mean that it's right for you to, to get the money out. Right? So, um, I think that's just the basic honesty. And she can still take the money because you know, they, they did take her money and so on. But I think we just need that basic honesty to say that it's not, it's not there. It's not real. And it's, it is taken from others. Thank you very much, Stefan. You're very welcome. And I'm sorry to hear about your wife. I hope that she is uh, in a situation where she can recover. Uh, not, not really. <laughs> but oh, we're living with it. Okay. Well, good. Good okay. for you. Take and, uh, care. Yeah, I hope. I hope. I mean, I'm not sort of trying to provoke guilt in her for you know, the, but this is the system. Um, I think we need to to at least be honest about you know that it's it's not. There's no. There's none of the money is left that was was paid in. Uh, it's all it's all gone and it's been replaced by debt. She can take the money out, but anyway, it's just mm. not. It's not there from when she paid it in. All right, Steve, you're up next. All right, let us continue with the Sunday show sausage fest. Steve, go for it. Hello. Uh, I'd like to talk about uh, sensible solutions to ending the Federal Reserve. Um, I think going out and protesting and asking for legislation is uh, a waste of time and it's degrading to uh, anyone who would partake. Um, you're basically asking to be ruled all over again. Um, instead, I think educating people about alternatives to Federal Reserve notes and any central bank-issued currency is probably the more feasible way to create actual change in the world. Um, most people don't know the value of precious metals, and uh, they don't know about Bitcoin, Litecoin, and other virtual currency exchanges. Uh, they don't know about alternate currency cards, which actually contain precious metals in them. Uh, they don't know about local currencies like the Ithaca Hours, the Berkshires, um, Mountain Hours in Vermont. Um, I was just wondering what you would think would be 
an effective way to educate people about these sort of things um, through social media and uh, organizing events. I, I recently organized an event to uh, rally at the Federal Reserve to have a sort of voluntarist-oriented protest. I see a state-oriented protest as uh, people with signs saying, make a law, repeal a law, or spend everyone's money. But a voluntarist-oriented protest would be more like, this is the problem, here's the solution, invest in the solution. Uh, do you think it's important for voluntarists to have rallies and do it in their own unique, unstatist way? so that we can help defeat the state by outmoding it and uh, making it obsolete with better alternatives. Well, I'm, I'm fine with alternative currencies. Uh, I, uh, I've, I'm holding on to Bitcoins even though they're dipping uh, just because I try to make my investment decisions based upon the best philosophical principles that I can think of. And I think that Bitcoin and, and Litecoin and other things are great uh, just because they are relatively free market solutions to the complex problems of, of currency and so on. So I'm just uh, I'm holding on to them. I think that in the long run they're going to be of great value. And um, so <clears throat> I think these things are wonderful. Uh, I, I don't think that – I don't think things like Bitcoin and so on are going to take, uh, take down the state. Uh, I, I don't think that's going to occur. I think for people who want to – barter and, and so on, it's a good medium and a good way of being able to do that. And I think that, they, again, I do think that they will increase in value and I'm certainly holding on to them but, um, uh, and I don't plan on selling at any time, but uh, I do at any time in the sort of near to medium future. But I don't think that um, alternate currencies are going to do it. Um, uh, corporations uh, are so embedded in the state and they're so dependent upon the state they use the state for so much of their pseudo-competitive advantage over the young, the nimble, the poor, the hardworking, and so on. You know, there's this – the great challenge of becoming rich is that you become less competitive, right? This is, this is supposed to be the natural cycle of the free market, the rags to riches to rags in three generations, right? So what happens is, you know, you, you, you come up with some great idea. You make a, you know, some, a couple million dollars or maybe a couple billion dollars or whatever, right? And then you buy these big-ass houses and you, your expenses go way up and your, your work ethic of your children goes down and, and so on, right? I mean, and then you can't compete with the next brilliant guy who's got a great idea and who makes money and takes away your market share and does all these kinds of things. There's supposed to be this natural cycle. Uh, and in the absence of the state, the fluidity of the classes – would be far greater. I mean, it'd be like a washing machine, lubed round and round, up and down, round and round, up and down. But what happens, of course, is that people who become wealthy immediately glom onto the state and start using the state to keep the poor from competing with them. Who keep, they, they, they really have to keep the poor from competing with them. The poor have lower expenses so they can be paid a lot less which renders them to be more competitive they have greater ambition why because they're poor right <laughs> i mean so they have a really great ambition to not be poor so they're incredibly hard working uh and they have very low expenses and uh they have time and you know they don't have to meet with their accountants very often and so 
the best thing for the poor is a free market because you have an automatic advantage in the free market just by being poor. So you have disadvantages too, right? Less access to capital and so on, but those can actually be advantages as well. So uh, because, you know, you don't have to dilute your ownership in whatever enterprise you're building and so on. So the poor have a huge advantage if they want it in the free market and the rich have a huge disadvantage in that they, they work less and they need more money for what they work. So, so from that standpoint, the state is just terrible for hardening class divisions. And this is not, I mean, it's not a theory. I mean, you can see this very much borne out in fact, in that as the state has gotten bigger, more and more wealth has accumulated to the top 1% or the top 5% of, of people, right? Let me, let, me just, let me just see if I can look this up. I just read this the other day, but I don't want to get, um, I want to get these numbers wrong. Uh, it has increased over the past few presidents in the, uh, uh, in the United States. And this is really, uh, really important that so much more money accumulates. So let's see here. So the top 1% wealthiest U.S. households own 32.7% of the total U.S. household wealth. And the top 5% hold well over half of all the household wealth. The bottom 90% hold only 30% of total household wealth. And this is increasing. Uh, this is increasing over time. And this is a, a, huge, uh, a huge problem. The portion of U.S. households reaching the Million Dollar Club grew from a mere 1% in 1965 to an estimated 9% as of year in 2005. Um, the U.S. population grew by over 100 million from 194 million to 296 from 1965 to 2005. The number of family members living in a household with a net worth of more than a quarter million increased nearly tenfold from about 11.6 million in 1965 to nearly 100 million uh, today. And what's happening is the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and the middle class is stagnating at best. And when people say the middle class is stagnating, they're failing to understand that the middle class is losing money because it's like saying, well, I'm, stagn I'm stagnating, but I'm going heavily into debt. Well, no, that actually means I'm falling behind. So the huge problem is that when there's a government, the rich will use the power of the state to reverse their historical disadvantage in the free market, right? Their higher costs and lower drive, lower ambition, lower work ethic. They will use the state to continue to transfer wealth to them, even though they should be turning over in the spin cycle of the free market and going back down relatively quickly after they go up. Of course, everybody who gets to the top wants to stay at the top, but it's really hard to do that, right? I mean, <laughs> it's not particularly relevant, but somebody, Kenya is very big on running, right? Very big on, uh, they, very, they do very well in the running games, <laughs> And, you know, one of the, somebody said, well, how do we stop Kenyan dominance in running? And it's like, well, we need to, we need to get them some school buses, <laughs> right? 
<laughs> because because the kids there all have to run to get to school. You know, kids always wake up late. They're always late for school and they run to get to school. You know, and after 10 years of running from 5 to 15, you're pretty good at running. <laughs> but if you subsidize and get them some school buses, then they'll sit there and, you know, pick on the pimply kids instead and won't get any running done. So their poverty is their success. This is very often the case in the free market. I mean, when I, I mean, because I came from a dirt poor family background, like eviction notices, like couldn't rustle up seven bucks for a swim club, like no money at all kind of situation. Um, you know, the rare times where we'd actually have some pop in the house and I'd have friends over, I'd have to put like nine ice cubes in everybody's glass to make one small bottle of pop go to three people and then would be roundly mocked by everyone for being cheap. Well, I'm not cheap. I had to eat food that was moldy sometimes just because I was so hungry. I mean, it was poor. And so when I got a chance to get involved in the business world and make some money, oh my God, I was like a rocket. There was no amount of work that I wouldn't do. I was so excited and grateful, thrilled, took nothing for granted, worked like a demon on fire. But, whoa, of course, the state is what people use to keep the poor down. Let's give them shitty schools. Let's give them welfare. Let's give them games, right? And let's raise the minimum wage and let's uh, make sure that uh, we create as many inducements to single parenthood as possible because that will keep the poor from competing with us. I'm not saying it's all a conscious plan. It's just the way that these things play out. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of keeping the free market in, in place, but the, government, the, 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 the corporations are so heavily embedded in the government that I don't think they're really going to have the option to switch to alternative currencies. They're going to side with the government to crush alternative currencies because corporations have become an extension of the state. We, we, it's, it's fascistic, fundamentally. And so the major economic activity has become so corrupted by state power that they will fight against the free market and have been for, for many years. If you believe that uh, corporate power holds control of government and you don't believe an alternative currency will render obsolete the debt creation, wealth stealing central bank scheme, then do you agree with the uh, libertarian approach to taming government and corporatism through legislation? Oh, no. Um, no, no, no. And uh, I'm, I'm just uh, organizing a rally uh, right now called uh, Rally at the Fed Banks. And um, I'm trying to, trying to show people a different way of protesting that doesn't involve, uh, you know, just holding a sign and begging and growling to your government. Um, and sorry, let me just mention too, I, I think education is a great thing. I mean, I think educating people about the nature of fiat currency and inflation and the Federal Reserve and, you know, the, the ultimate corruption that comes from being able to type whatever you want into your own bank account. I think educating people about that stuff is very important. It's very important. But the only thing that we need to defeat the state is truth. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous and simple, but... The reason that people can't speak honestly about the state is because the state is so morally abhorrent in its structure and in its violence that we have to create all these euphemisms. You know, it's the same thing you always hear with people with spanking, right? Spanking is, has all these terrible, well, spanking, giving a little light swat on the butt is different from beating a child. It's like giving a child a little light swat on the butt 
is not spanking. Spanking is a correctional behavior modification assault which causes pain and humiliation because it has to cause pain and humiliation in order to change behavior, right? I mean, <laughs> I will pat my wife on the butt from time to time. That is not the same as me hauling off and spanking her uh, and leaving red marks and shaming and painting and humiliating her, which is impossible to imagine, of course. But So people, they, they can't speak honestly about the evils that they do. And, and all that we need to defeat the state, which is not inconsiderable, is the truth. It's a monopoly of violence. It's coercion. Uh, it, it, it reserves for itself the moral right to do that which it imprisons everyone else for. It is hypocrisy incarnate. It is a living, monstrous, Balrog-style institution of hell on earth which will destroy civilization and let us never, ever confuse society with the state. Let us never, ever confuse civilization with the government. These two are absolutely opposite forces. And so the question is, how can we possibly raise or, or have human beings in the world who can handle even a modicum of truth? It's a hard question. You know, people are like, they recoil from the truth. The truth is a tiger to the vast majority of human beings, right? Bringing somebody into a philosophical conversation is like tying them to an anchor and throwing them into a shark tank, I mean, they recoil. It's not even an allergy. It is a physical jump out of your skin recoiling from the truth. And why is it that they recoil from the truth? Because the truth would end them psychologically, because they have built their personality so much on lies, or so many lies have been inflicted on them, that the truth ends them psychologically. Uh, it is a sort of mini death that people will avoid, and it literally feels like a death. It feels like, you know, if you've ever gone through one of those massive changes in your life where you realize that you're living in a matrix, well, it feels like you're dying, which is why Keanu Reeves has this rebirth thing when he comes out of this pod, right? Because it feels like you're dying, and, and the born-again thing is, is, you know, when we're born again in the truth. Now, how do we get people able to handle the truth? Right now, we're trying to run 10,000 volts through a piece of string. Well, all it does is burst into flames, right? So how is it that we can make people strong enough to handle the truth? Because once they accept the truth, the system will change immediately. Well, we have to raise them with fewer lies. Because as long as people's personalities are built on lies, they will be ferociously averse to the truth. And they will make up any more lies that they want to stay away from the truth and to keep the truth at bay. And this is why I believe education is important, but the most important education is around child raising. Stop lying to your children, and they will be able to handle the truth about the state. Once they can handle the truth about the state, there will be no state. Well, I appreciate your comments. Uh, my three-year-old definitely knows that uh, Santa Claus is bullshit, and so is the state. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think you're right on that point, that it, it's going to take the next generation to raise the next generation in the appropriate way and uh, we need we need a, a new a new mindset in all people that, that doesn't have this uh, violence and force at the center of its theory and uh, you're doing a lot of good work and I appreciate it and I uh, can't wait to can't wait to finish the UPB I'm about halfway through reading it right now it's some very interesting and enlightening things. Oh, yeah, thanks. I uh, appreciate that. And congratulations on being a dad. And I'm sure your son is incredibly lucky to have you. 
good for you. And I appreciate that the work you're doing to educate people. I think it is important to educate people. Uh, you know, whatever chips away at the matrix is a good thing. You know, whatever chips away at people's um, cataracts is a – chipping away at cataracts is a pretty gross metaphor. Whatever helps clear up people's cataracts is a, is a good thing. Uh, whatever can let a chink of light into the tunnel – uh, is is something that can draw people to it if that's where they want to go. So congratulations. Uh, and if there's anything I can do to help you publicize your event, just email me, operations at freedomainradio.com, talk to Mike, and we'll see if we can get, get some publicity out for you because I certainly do want people to become more aware of... Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the government's not going to have much trouble with Bitcoin. They'll just say it's illegal or whatever it is if at some point they want to. And most people won't know what that means. They'll just stay away from it they don't know that it can't be tracked and all anyway but it's all all kinds of nonsense but um uh, i i do really applaud you for the work that you're doing to educate people and i think it is a it is a good thing whatever draws people um out of the matrix uh, in in whatever way possible is great so so good for you for doing that and um also wanted to mention that um actually going to start releasing chunks of my parenting book uh it's um uh, i think for gold Plus donators, so there's 20 bucks a month or more, or people who've donated, I think, 150 bucks or more, uh, they can get uh, chunks of the book as it comes out. I'm certainly looking forward to feedback. I'd like it to be a little bit more collaborative, simply because I can't claim in any way, shape, or form to have, <laughs> you know, the final say on parenting in any way. But um, lots of other parents out there would have great solutions to problems I've never experienced or problems that I've experienced and dealt with less optimally than I could. So if you are a gold donator to Freedom Main Radio, uh, look for the email with um, the book uh, as it's coming along. I look forward to getting your feedback on it as we're moving forward through that. So thank you very much for your comments. And we will move to the next caller. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, Mia, you're up next. Oh, Mia? Oh, hello. Ah, we've got one. Ah. I'll try to be nice. <laughs> How's it going? Okay. Oh, oh, I'm fine. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was just uh, wanting to speak about Sudbury schools. Oh, please do. Oh, yeah. In particular, uh, I don't know if um, if uh, you've heard about a Sudbury school in uh, the Netherlands that uh, the parents are being threatened with legal action. I've heard uh, that. Yeah. Can you tell me a little more yeah. about that? Oh, well, basically, uh, the authorities, in their wisdom, have decided that it's... Um, that it's not a proper school, uh, and because of that, they're threatening the parents with legal action. Well, wow. now, what sort of legal action is it? Criminal? Is it civil? I mean, what are they saying? Uh, civil, civil legal action. Ugh. Yeah, homeschooling is illegal in the Netherlands, so these children uh, will probably be forced into mainstream school. Oh, terrible. Yeah. So I actually started a petition to petition to stop the legal action, and quite a few people have signed it. I've got a little under 700 signatures so far. Wow, that's quite something. Um, now, it's private schooling. The private schooling is, is legal there too, is legal, right? Is it just that the school is not considered to be accredited? Is that right? I think that's probably what, what the case is. But I, I think, to be honest, I think it's because they don't follow like the, the more traditional methods of schooling because sure. because this is much more sort of... I mean, to be honest, I think the fact they don't class it as, a, as what would be called a proper school is a compliment in a way because it's 
they're sort of are more focused on the child. Right. Now, I just saw something on Facebook here. It says, stop legal action against parents of Sudbury School students. Is that yours at all, or is that someone else's? That's mine. I'm just, I'm just curious whether, it were like, under what uh, rules they are... Oh, here's the petition I think I found. It's at avias.org? Yes, I think that's it. Yeah, this is yours, Mia. Yeah, this is yours. Okay, well, we'll put this on the video and we'll put this on the podcast if you can remember, Mike, as well. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm, I'm curious. I haven't been able to find it here, but I haven't seen what kind of legal action. I mean, whether it would be uh, considered abusive or whether it's not, uh, they're considered like it's, if it, whether they would be criminal, whether it would be, um, you know, you might lose your kids or, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm not sure what. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, civil action and sort of they'd, uh, I think they'd probably ensure that uh, these children have to go to mainstream schools, which is yeah. not good. I've heard that um, they're applying to the European Court of Human Rights, but that might not be successful. I think it's something like five or less than 5% of cases are ever successful. Right. And it's, it's an issue that I feel very strongly about because... Um, I had a very abusive school life as a child. Uh, mm. I went to one of those um, uh, private schools in uh, in the north of England. Ah, I was in the west of England. Did you get caned as well? Yeah. Uh, I didn't get caned, but I did used to get hit, kicked, force-fed, all that sort of thing. Oh, I'm so sorry. Gosh, how terrible. Yeah, so I'm very keen to ensure that other children don't go go through that. And also not just the corporal punishment, but also things like it's it's just sort of a, a very abusive nature. I mean, you don't have to hit a child to to um to abuse them or to mistreat them. I mean it's it's a very coercive environment in a very abusive they, they, and and also they don't listen to what a lot of schools don't listen to what what it is the children need and the children are interested in, which is which is why the schools like this are, are good in that they focus on what the child's interests are. Well, uh, I appreciate you doing this, um, and if you get the state to back off, I suppose it's it's worth uh, doing a um, uh, worth doing a sign there. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to to mention or to ask about? And we'll certainly do what we can to help publicise the petition. Uh, no, not that I can think of, but uh, I very much appreciate you um, y- you agreeing to publicise the petition and sort of uh, I hope um, I hope it'll um, be of interest to to listeners as well. Good. Well, I hope so. I hope so too. And uh, keep me posted if you can about uh, about how it goes. And my certainly my heart goes out to the parents who are trying to keep their kids out of these brain-deadening status institutions, and it is, uh, it is tough. I mean, it's says homeschooling or unschooling is, um, is tough in a lot of places to, to try and get to work. So um, I, hope this, uh, I hope this helps at least uh, keep the beasts back uh, from, from the kids a little bit. Here's hoping. Uh, here's hoping. Thank you so much for your call, me. I appreciate it. All right. We got time for another caller, maybe even more than one. Let us see. All right, Alex, you're up next. Go ahead. Where should I start? Well, I mean, since I've started doing the research and uh, kind of bumped into your YouTube feed, uh, had some pretty bad family problems, uh, mostly from my father's side. We just went on a trip. Some of the things that happened, like yelling and all that on the plane, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of tried to understand what has been happening since I've kind of been more apprehensive with my father about yelling 
at me or at my brother and uh, why he's doing it. I, I'm really trying to figure out how to solve this. So, so for the past couple of months, I've been been trying to find ways to get out of the house because we actually live in a in America. We've moved there, I'd say, 12 years. How should I put this? Um, it wasn't easy, uh, the move. I'm not even sure if the relationship was that good before uh, between my parents, uh, between my mom and my dad. But uh, my dad moved first to America about 12 years ago, and then we moved there 11 years ago. From there on, uh, I mean, there's just been yelling and pretty much all the nasty things that I've gone through uh, through your podcast and stuff that through the philosophy that that were pretty much negative uh, against me growing up, you know. Uh, and I'm 21 now, and I'm trying to figure out how to get out of the the household. That's that's one of my main motivations right now. Since, oh, sorry to interrupt. But what's the um what's what's the yelling about? Well, pretty much. I mean, uh, just basic examples from. Even today, uh, I mean, not today was mostly towards my brother, but uh, things off the top of my head, like my room not being clean, or um, I mean, the, the yelling's pretty much just uh, uh, they're they're pointed at either whatever is thought to be the bad behavior in me, like uh, not eating on time or not eating vegetables, or you know, just I mean, uh, I don't know how to explain it. Not eating vegetables. You're you're twenty. You're right, you're twenty one, right? Oh no no well, well okay so so that this is happening to my brother now. This used to happen to me when I was younger. Oh, okay, uh, when, okay. I mean, I, I'm still, I'm, I'm still being apprehended by that. I mean, I'm not being apprehended. I'm, I'm being asked more politely. I think it's probably because of, you know, age, as you said in your, in your podcast. You know, with age, um, there becomes the disparity of power is a little less. But uh, it's pretty much anything. Like even having the computer on when I'm going downstairs. We live in like a Two, two level house and if I go downstairs and computers on uh, I'll probably get yelled about that or going out with friends and everything like that um, and I've already looked at this and, and and obviously I figured out that it was I mean his basic argument is that you know if you're living here uh, and using my money uh, you should pretty much obey to the rules that uh, are set well, up. Can I let me just make a suggestion right so I mean I don't know obviously whether you should stay home or not that's not my, my, it's not my, not my place to say, but, but sometimes giving people a new perspective uh, it can really shock them into something that's quite interesting. So let me give you a tiny, uh, really, I will promise, to, let me give you a tiny speech that might be helpful, just in terms of breaking people's habits. Because people, you know, the, the, you know, the old saying that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, if you've got just, just one way of doing things, that's all you do. It's like, well, if there's a problem, I yell at someone until they do what I want. Well, that's, you know, then that's all you end up doing, right? It's a, but what you could say is something like this. is say, look, I'm 21 years old. You've been trying the yelling thing for 21 years, right? You could say to your mom and dad or your dad. So you've been trying the yelling thing for 21 years. Now, clearly, it's not working that well. Right? Because you have to keep yelling. I mean, the whole point of, of trying to modify someone's behavior is you should stop having to do it after a while, right? If you have to keep chasing me around and yelling at me whenever I do something you don't like, then it doesn't ever have an end, right? You never get free of yelling at me. I mean, I said, I'm sure you don't want to yell at me all day, and I don't want to be yelled at all day. Now, you, def- you are the parent, right? So you defined the yelling thing. You made this choice or maybe it was just a habit or something like that. But you basically said, well, the way that I'm going to deal with 
my kids when they don't do what I want is I'm going to yell at them, right? Now, that's not the only way to do it, and there's lots of people who say that's not the best way to do it. But wouldn't it be great if we could have a family life which didn't involve all this yelling? Like, wouldn't that just be, wouldn't that just be fantastic? And now, I'm interested in exploring that. Sorry, go ahead. Do you mind if I just interrupt really quick? Well, um, no, no. This is, this, is, this is a problem that I've been having because the yelling thing has been apart uh, for such a long time. And, and this is, the, the problem pretty much is that the yelling has sort of diminished for me at least. But, but um, actually on this trip that I said we're having, um, I've, I've mentioned this. That, uh, I, I told them um, as, as in uh, from, from the book Real Time Relationships that, you know, it's like you're scaring me when you're yelling at me. And uh, uh, that's exactly what I said, and you said it like this is my tone of voice, and you shouldn't worry about how my tone of voice is. Um, and uh, wait, sorry, let me just. So I, your father said, sorry, you said you scare me when you yell mm-hmm. at me, and your father said you shouldn't worry about my tone of voice. Yes, but I'm sorry, I don't quite understand. Isn't yelling supposed to be negative for you? Well, yes. So if he's saying I'm going to do something negative to you, called yelling but you shouldn't focus on the fact that it's negative, that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Um, no, I fully understand this. And, and to be honest, I, I do not know what to do in the situation because, I mean, I say that I'm scared of, of, uh, of him yelling and then it keeps happening. Uh, or at least it diminishes if my mom intervenes or something. But um, I understand that. Well, sorry, no, no, listen, and, listen uh, but, no but, sorry to interrupt, but with this kind of conflict, my belief is, it's just my amateur opinion, mm-hmm. but... You can't solve conflicts in the moment. I have to, like, I have to keep remembering this with my daughter. You, you can't solve conflicts in the moment. All you can do is prevent them. Right? So once you're being yelled at, it's really, really tough to turn that around. So what you have to do, in my opinion, is you sit down when you're both calm right, and say, I, don't, like, I know the yelling thing is diminished, but I don't, I don't like it. I don't like being around it. I don't like it with my younger brother. You know, can, can we not try and find a way that we can all get what we want, but without the yelling? Because it's intimidating, right? You're the dad, you're bigger, you've got this historical power relationship. It's intimidating. Right? And it's supposed to be, right? It's supposed to be something that is unpleasant for someone. Um, it's a verbal form of spanking, right? So yelling is, is scary, it's intimidating, and, you know, let's, let's at least consider the possibility. And it doesn't, doesn't work that well. Because we still have a lot of conflicts, right? So it hasn't solved the problem. It's just, it's like hitting a puppy with a stick, you know? It may get them to change their behavior, but it's not exactly warming the heart of the relationship, right? And so I think that you, what happens so often in, in these kinds of conflict-based relationships, if that's what it is, is when you're not having conflict, you don't want to provoke conflict because the conflict is unpleasant. And so when you're not having conflict, you don't try and solve the next conflict ahead of time because you can't have a reasonable discussion about it. And so you just kind of hang out hoping that nothing's going to happen, then it always does, right? But if you can sit down with your dad and say, listen, I don't, I don't like the yelling thing. I never did. I don't think it works really well. I think there are other options or other ways that we can work on things. And I don't think that you want me to turn the computer off just because you're going to yell at me. I think you want me to turn the computer off for other reasons. So let's try and figure out, because I don't like being yelled at, so I'm going to have resistance to doing things just because someone's yelling at me. So let's try and find some other way 
that we could figure out how to have a happier and better time living together other than the yelling. Like, let's, you know, because I'm an adult, you're an adult, you know, my youngest brother is growing up. At some point, he's going to be an adult. So let's try and find a way that we can have conflicts, which is inevitable in all relationships, even with ourselves. We can have conflicts, but we'll find other ways to resolve them rather than just yelling because I just, that doesn't feel like the right thing to do. As, as we get older, I don't think it ever was the right thing to do, but let's just say it was. It's certainly not, I think, the best way. And that way, you can at least have a conversation before or when you're not already in a situation of conflict. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm still having a little bit of a doubt since, like, my, my, my habits have changed. Uh, I mean, um, I'm not sure because of the yelling, but, like, for example, the computer problem. I mean, I always try to turn it off because I, I understand why why I shouldn't have the computer on if I'm like downstairs or if I leave the room or something for too long. I understand that I, I mean, it's not something, it's a choice that I make uh, gladly because I don't really want to have the computer on for it and it does nothing. But, um, and, and, and this has been with, with a lot of other choices as well. But uh, yeah, I, I do see, I do see where you're coming from with the idea because I, I can't remember right now any times where I have spent any of this, of this time talking when, um, uh, my father is calm, but, but that's the thing, uh, because these things happen so often, uh, so often either to my mother or to me uh, or to my brother, um, I, I, I don't know, I just feel like I'm kind of locked into, into this mode, trying to figure out what's happening, but not actually dealing with it. In a, in, I mean, I'm trying to deal with it, that, that's the problem, because um, the frequency of, of these things, I mean, I'm not sure, maybe I'm, I'm just... Uh, over exaggerating, but I think if it happened a couple of times during the day, for example, my dad was, uh, today was, as I said, we're on a trip and my parents are staying in the house and, and uh, it was nice outside. My father was being, uh, I mean, quite pushy about uh, my, my brother taking his shirt off to, you know, to go in the sun because he thinks that's a good thing. Um, yeah, sorry. I just, uh, I think that we may be getting into a bit too much detail here. Let me just um, mention something that... A, a, a good play to read, it's obviously a bit darker than your family situation, um, it's, it's by Eugene O'Neill called The Long Day's Journey Into Night. Uh, it's, a, it's about his childhood, and um, it's, it's a brutal play. It's very powerful. Uh, it's one of the masterpieces of 20th century drama. Uh, he actually wrote it uh, and, and refused to have it um, staged until at least 10 years after he was dead. Uh, he'd written such a magnificent play, but he couldn't bear to see it on stage. And it's one of the things that, I mean, there's a lot in the, in the play that is harrowing and, and terrifying and, and powerful. But one of the things that struck me when I did scene studies from it um, as an actor was the young man is talking to his father, and his father is constantly obsessed about turning the lights off, you know, because the lights are on and cost money and this that and the other now i get that i mean when i was a kid growing up you know we we had little coins we had to put in the heater to to get heat and we didn't have a lot of these coins because as i mentioned we were kind of broke and so we just you know we'd space them out a little bit so that we wouldn't get too cold and you know you you really do get a sense that power costs money when you're feeding coins in and you're freezing your ass off because you don't have enough but the son keeps saying to the dad he says dad I've, I've, I've shown you the math. It costs pennies. It's nothing. And his, his dad was a famous actor at this point and was making lots of money. 
uh, just like Eugene O'Neill's father, um, in a play that had consumed his, it was a popular play, um, sort of had consumed his artistic ambitions. He'd done a great Hamlet. He ended up doing this Three Musketeers style play. So his dad had a lot of money, but was still knowingly obsessed with the lights have to be turned off. And his son says, look, it, it, it's, it's like 0.000, it's like he didn't give the actual numbers, but it's like 0.0001% of your annual income, even if we had all the lights on all the time. And there's this, and I, I really got a, a strong sense, and I, I feel this like even now when I'm thinking about it, about the frustration with non-empirical parental stuff. In other words, when your parents have unprocessed stuff from their childhood and you get this broken record thing where it's all just about mm-hmm. anxiety management and repetition, it's incredibly frustrating. Because you want your parents to see reason, right? And you want your parents to be empirical because that's what they ask you to do. They ask you to be reasonable and to be empirical and so on. And I get, like, the, the energy thing, I still have this thing. It's like, oh, i got to put my computer to sleep before I go to bed at night because it's, you know, why would it want to run all night? And it, it's not much money, right? Like, so I kept bugging my wife to, um, she's got an iPod uh, touch, right? And I, oh, you know, don't leave it plugged in overnight, I mean, it's just wasting power. Like, oh my God, it's insane, right? And then I looked up and it's like, I don't know, 50 cents or a buck a year, even if you left it plugged. Like the amount of time I was spending talking to my wife about this ridiculous power consumption relative to how much it cost us was insane. Like a computer is like 20, 25 bucks a year, even if you left it on all the time. I mean, again, I'm not saying that's unimportant and, you know, whatever it is, but we have this kind of energy conservation thing going on, and that's different than it was in Eugene O'Neill's time. It was a bit more about price, a little bit less about environmentalism and so on, right? But for me, it's a huge – like, I don't care. Leave it plugged in. Ah, who cares, right? I'm not going to go down there, you know, oh, i got to unplug the phone. It's been plugged in for three hours, and it's fully charged. We must unplug it. It's like, oh, forget it. Forget it, right? Even the phone tells you my phone says, oh, don't forget to unplug your charger. So, and the reason I'm talking about all of this is um, you can show your dad the math. The computer's on. You know, if, like, we're fighting about, even if I turn the computer off half the time, and, like, let's say I, I want to leave it on all the time, which I don't. Let's say I turn it off half the time. We're talking about about 10 bucks a year. Now, somebody said, here's 10 bucks, Dad. <laughs> Now you don't have to yell at me about the computer. I know it's not about that. I mean, I get that you know energy is pollution and so on, right? But let's keep things in perspective. We're talking about ten bucks a year. Now, for ten bucks a year, wouldn't it be nicer to not yell at each other? And also, if you don't yell at me, I'm more likely to turn the, the computer off because I'm not going to resist it because I'm being yelled at, right? And so, when it comes to these kinds of conflicts, I think it's really important to understand what's really being fought about. What's really being fought about is not $10 a year. It's not, you know, pennies for the light uh, in the actor's home in the long day's journey into night. It's, you know, because the, the whole issue with, with the, the family in a long day's journey into night is that the mom is a morphine addict, which is a little bit more important to the family's happiness than whether the porch light is on for an extra hour or not, right? You see, people get focused on these little stupid things as a way of avoiding the big important things, right? If your dad's yelling at people a lot, that's a little bit more important than whether you're saving 10 bucks a year in computer electricity, right? Right. And I mean, I fully understand that this is the problem. It's just uh, solving it you I can't guess, solve. Oh, I, I mean, 
No, you you can't. You no. Listen, listen. You can't solve it as long as your dad thinks it's about the computer power. You can't solve it, right? I mean, the the most fundamental thing about self knowledge is to understand the degree to which emotional upset is almost never about the cover story. This is, you know, the most important thing I probably got to say today. Maybe even this month. Emotional upset is almost never, ever, ever about the cover story. Right? The cover story is invented to, invo- to avoid the real issues that are going on. Right? So the real issues is that your dad sounds like a bit of a bully. Right? He's yelling at people and all this kind of stuff. Right? And he says it's about the power or it's about the vegetables or it's you know, about this, that, and the other. Now, you really can't make progress with people when it comes to solving conflicts if you think it's about the cover story. Or if they think it's about the cover story, if they genuinely think that it's only about the vegetables, right? Um, right. If right, so so I mean, and this doesn't take a lot of rational understanding, right? And the reason I say that is that if the parent says, "Well, I'm interested in the vegetables because I want you to be healthy," right? Then you can say, "Well, don't you realize that yelling at me is really stressful and that's bad for my health?" So if you were really into my health, you wouldn't be yelling at me. You would find other ways to get me to eat my vegetables, right? Rather than – because if you're really into my health, then yelling at me is stressful and unpleasant and difficult and I can't sleep and I get upset and my cortisol levels go high and you know all this kind of stuff, right? It's bad for me to have this fight-or-flight mechanism kicking in all the time, right? So the cover story called you need to eat your vegetables because I'm really concerned about your health, so I'm going to yell at you. That cover story takes about 90 seconds to dismantle, right? Does, does that make sense? Oh, no, it, it totally makes sense. Um, you were saying with, with the vegetables thing, how I would apply it. You know, I would ap- apply it very pragmatically. Would you mind if I, if I share, like, uh, an example that happened on this trip that uh, I'm just trying to figure out what would be the best approach to, sure. uh, to, even, to even go with this. But, um, okay, so, so the, the situation was, okay, so the situation was about the sunburn then, right? Afterwards, I turned it into um, pretty much telling my dad that you know, it's like just leave my brother alone, and then and then and then uh, then he switched to me. It's like take your shirt off, you know. And I, I already had a little bit of sunburn. I was like, I'm done for the day. You know, I've stayed four hours in the sun. It pretty much just escalated to to him tell to, to him repeatedly telling me to do that. No, no. So okay, listen. Th- this is this would be my suggestion if uh, if I, I think mm-hmm. I understand it. And this would be my suggestion, and it's a fundamental thing. About, about parenting, or really like any, any relationships, right? So I would say to him, Dad, do you want me to obey you because I'm scared of you or because I'm afraid of negative consequences or do you want me to do the right thing because I understand what needs to be done and why? My belief is that a parent's job is not to get children to do stuff. Right. That's that's. But, but rather to have the children understand why things need to be done. Right. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, my mom would like, oh, you got to brush your teeth, and she'd like smell my mouth. Oh, you didn't brush your teeth. You didn't brush it long enough. Right. Over. Right. And so there was this cat and mouse game where I didn't want to brush my teeth because I was being bullied into brushing my teeth. Right. And then I realized, as I mentioned before in the show, like I, I kind of got, oh, okay, so 
So if I don't brush my teeth, I'm the one who has to go get them drilled, right? I'm going to get cavities and, you know, all that kind of shit, right? I'm the one to get needles in my gums and all that ugly stuff, right? And so I internalized that. And since then, I've had really good oral hygiene and my teeth are doing great. I still have, I still have my wisdom teeth. Got one in a thousand people over 40 with their wisdom teeth, right? And so I've, you know, because I got it, I internalized it. And that's really what parents are supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be getting children to internalize the values, not obey the behavior. Right now, your dad is, you know, it sounds like he's kind of stuck in this paradigm of, well, I've got to get them to do stuff. And, you know, as Dana Martin has said, it's pretty exhausting spending your whole day running around trying to control other people. It's tiring. You got to constantly be on your guard. You're constantly irritated, constantly annoyed, constantly snapping at people. You're just controlling them, trying to control them all the time. That's not good parenting. That is not good parenting. It is not good parenting to be snarling at your kids, uh, especially you're 21. You're, I mean, you should have internalized these values by now, but you spent your whole time dodging your dad's verbal aggression. And rather than internalizing the values, you're just fighting with the yelling, right? So, uh, Well, um, I, I don't – I mean, I, I'm just going to – one second. Um, I think a lot of the things that he's told me, like uh, with the computer stuff – uh, from early on, I have pretty much just like with the vegetables, I think I've internalized a lot of those things on my own um, just by doing the research and, and kind of understanding those those consequences and everything. But but you've done that. Just, no, sorry. But you but that's like saying that. But but you've done that despite what your dad's been doing. Right. Like I figured out how to take care of my teeth despite what my mom was doing. So yeah, um, but 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 the point is that that's still not good parenting to be snapping at your children. And you said he was still yelling at you about the computer and the power and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, you can appeal to his, what did it say, appeal to his greed, and you can say, look, you don't want to be spending your whole day yelling at people. You don't want to spend your whole day, like, ordering me to not be at the beach but not be able to go to the hotel. And, you know, that's, that's not fun. That's not how we want to be spending time together as a family. Wouldn't it be more fun if you could let go of this? I mean, I'm 21. And wouldn't it be fun if you could just let go of this control now? And if I make mistakes, I make mistakes. But... You know, what parents often do is, you know, particularly dysfunctional parents, is, you know, they, they paint a picture and then they say that the picture is somehow wrong. You know, it's a bad picture or something like that. It's like, well, you painted it. You know, and so if parents who are critical of their children, it's like, well, you're the parent for God's sakes. I mean, how the hell do you get to be critical of your children? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like, a, you know, oh, this painting I made is, is terrible. It's a bad, it's an ugly, as if you had nothing to do with it, right? But, of course, um, so you can appeal to his greed and say, you know, what if we could have a family – you can talk to your mom about it too. And, and, you know, what if we could have a family situation where there's less of this snarling and less of this yelling and less of this bullying and less of this, you know. I mean, wouldn't that be great? I mean, and it, it's stressful for you. It's stressful for me. It's stressful for everyone. And it doesn't help us to internalize the values that you want us to internalize because, you know, dad, you don't want us to just be doing stuff because you're going to yell at us. I mean, because you're going to be dead one day, and what the hell are we going to do? Just stand in a corner and not move because no one's yelling at us? That's not going to help us learn how to become effective and positive human beings with our own internalized value systems. There's got to be a better way. And just start to explore. See if he's willing to explore those. I mean, I'm sure he's getting pretty tired of yelling at people too. At least that would be my guess. And, uh, you know, if you can look at other things, other ways to do it, um, that would be my – but you have to do that when it's calm. You know, not, not when you're in the middle – of a fight because then people's reasons usually out the window to begin with. So that would be my, uh, that would be my suggestion. I'm sorry. I can't give you any more help. I feel it's a little bit foggy trying to figure out what the, the issues are, but this would be uh, my approach if, if that helps at all. So 
Uh, thank you very much for, for calling in, and I certainly wish you the best of luck with that conversation if you, um, no uh, if you pursue it. Uh, no problem, and thank you. You're very welcome. Well, I'm sorry we went a little bit over. Thank you so much for the callers. Uh, it's 12.21. Look at that. And uh, again, if you'd like to drop off some Bitcoins or some, we also take fiat currency uh, at uh, fdrurl.com forward slash donate. Uh, thank you so much to uh, Mike to, uh, for, for keeping the show running. Uh, and uh, woo, five callers, not too bad. Uh, and have yourselves a wonderful week. And I will talk to you soon.